Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, divers. Welcome to episode 71 of the Diving In podcast, which Louise and I are recording on unceded Watchuk Noongar land in Western Australia, and we want to pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land. Lou and I are back in our pillow fort this morning. Mm. It's early in the morning and we're in our, my dining room and we're going to record this conversation, which is a little bit different from a normal podcast because we're doing it as a book club. So we're just going to be discussing one book today, which is Salt River Road by Molly Schmidt, which is published by Fremantle Press. Molly's a journalist. She works oh, at the she? ABC, yes. And now, oh, of actually, course, yes, I author. Did read that, yes. Yeah. This is her debut, um, which I think is remarkable. Um, she won the Hungerford Award, which is a literary prize for a work of adult fiction, narrative nonfiction or young adult fiction, by an unpublished writer. Wow. So, uh, it's a cash prize of $15,000, but it's also, more importantly, a publishing contract with Fremantle Press. And so she was the 2022 winner. Wow. And so this is now the result of that book being published. She's only 24. Uh, um, I think she's a wonderful writing talent. Gosh. She suffered loss herself as a child, and I think she's sort of exquisitely captured what it's like to be in a family that's just falling apart with grief. Uh, and she acknowledges her father who died in the back of the book. Yeah, and she really does capture it. I didn't know that when I was reading it. And I had looked at her author photograph and thought, gosh, she's very young to be capturing mm. all this. And then when I read the acknowledgements, I realised and uh, I got goosebumps. Yes. Uh, I've got goosebumps now just thinking yes. about it because it was very obvious that she knew what she was talking about. Yes, very much so. Yeah. So before we kick off, I will do a little bit of a warning, just that it starts off anyway being a very sad story. I think it has a lovely arc and a lovely ending, but there is a lot of grief. And if you're in that stage in your life where that's not for you, then this book might not be for you at this time. And there is also a suicide attempt in this book, which might not be for some readers So Salt River Road is a novel set in 1979, mainly set on a farm outside of Albany in the southwest of Western Australia. And the family that live on this farm, the Tetley family, is completely broken with grief. Their mother, Elena, and the wife of Eddie, who's the dad, has died after being very ill with cancer for five years, a good five years. And it's told from a number of different voices. There's Frank, who's the very middle son, and he is 17 at the time the book starts. And then the other main person who tells the story is Rose, who's the only daughter, and she's a year younger than Frank. Exactly a year younger. Exactly a year younger. They share a birthday. And then there's also someone or something called Nagank, 
Mm. who does the odd chapter. And I wasn't sure who or what Ngank is, but it seemed to be an omniscient being looking down on the family. And it's in fact revealed what Ngank means right at the very end of the yes. book. And it was the most lovely, moving revelation. That gave me goosebumps, actually, yes. the, the revelation of what that is. And I I don't think there's any need to say that. No, yet. no, it's nice for the yeah. reader to have that revealed yeah, to them. Exactly. Some of the chapters even include some sort of free poetry, yeah. which was sort of unusual. And all of the narrators are talking to the mother, telling her their experience after she has died. And that does give it a very heartfelt tone, yes, doesn't it? It does. And I think that partly because they are incapable yeah. of sharing with each other how they're feeling, yes, the most natural so person in the world that they may share their feelings with yeah, would be their mother. With her. And, and it's interesting you say that because I found the prose poetry, and it's interesting because uh, Molly Schmidt almost didn't include that. Right. She, I've heard her talk about this. Okay. And she was in two minds as to whether or not she would include that prose poetry. I don't know whether she started with that when she first started right. to write this story, but she wasn't sure whether she should include it or not. But to me, I felt those passages, those that poetry was even more Frank and Rose directly yeah. talking to their mother. Yeah, yeah. It was very hard. Because it was a bit clipped sometimes, wasn't it? It was yes. a bit sort of shorthand. Very and, short and uh, very and to the point. Yeah, yeah. So. Beautifully, beautifully written. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, you know, when you do lose people, as you and I have... You do often have conversations in your head with yeah, the people with that, that you've person. lost. Absolutely. And so that, that's what it was for me. Yeah, it was it's a the, way of coping. Yeah, yeah. And often people will do that when they're giving eulogies. They will talk yes. as though they're talking to the person. Yes. Yeah, it, it was a little bit like a eulogy actually or an obituary in, yes. in, at times as well. So, Lou, you and I were a very similar age to Rose in 1979. Yes, yes. I think you and I both turned 15 in 79. Yes. And she's 16 yes. in 79. So this book has a lot of pieces that connect oh, to absolutely. our lives, doesn't I, it? Yeah, it really... I mean, there are scenes in Perth, not that I was in Perth in 79, yeah. but the uh, Karakata, which is mm. literally a couple of miles from us here, that really hit home. Yeah. It's very, very close, yeah. very close to home indeed. And for me, coming to Australia when I was 10, my family, probably because we were English chose to often have holidays in the Great Southern. Oh, it was a okay. little bit cooler. Okay, yes. So we would spend a lot of time in Albany. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, I really, it really resonated Gosh. with me, this oh, story. wow. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I hope I don't cry during the podcast. I certainly cried when yeah, I was reading yeah. the book mm, a couple of times. Yeah, it's very, very moving. Mm. So do you want to start talking about Rose? Yes. So as you have uh, mentioned, Rose Tetley and her siblings live with their father, Rose, as she's one of five, the four siblings of boys, and they live on a farm in the Great Southern Region. And for those that don't know, that region of Western Australia is sort of largely agricultural. It's large-scale sheep and crop farming. So Rose's mum, Elena, has grown up in Perth, but as a young girl, she would often accompany her father, Vincent, who was a botanist, on his road trips around Western Australia. And he wrote books and became well-known for his botany books. And she became very familiar and interested in the plants he was studying and she would sketch them. And it's in this great southern region that Elena meets her husband, Eddie, and to the disappointment of her family, she's moved away from Perth. 
Rose's first chapter is excruciatingly sad and raw, as much of Molly Schmidt's prose is. It's written very simply and, you know, just enough words to capture the essence of, you know, how she's feeling. In that chapter, it's the morning before Elena dies and Rose has cooked her mum some scrambled eggs and she's sitting on the bed where her mum is resting, holding her hands. All the boys are outside kicking a soccer ball against the wall. And then after a sort of family kerfuffle and their dad shouting at them, they all pile into the bedroom and onto her bed with the dad and the whole family is together. This sort of became a real thing for me when I read this book. It struck me that for much of the book, the family is together physically, mm. but mentally mm. they're very separate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and alternating those chapters between Rose with Frank's chapters yeah. serves to emphasise those sort of invisible barriers that have developed between the family members over the past two years particularly. Yes. Uh, as Elena's been very sick. And how they sort of each internalise their feelings and their fears and their sadness. So they've retreated inwardly to deal with their personal feelings. So on the one hand, they seek each other out to be with, to be near each other in, in a physical sense. Yeah, that's um, But emotionally they're trapped inside their grief yeah. and unable to talk to each other about it. And there's this wonderful example of this very early on in the book in one of Rose's chapters they travel up to Perth for their mother's funeral and they're at their aunt Lisa's house for the wake and don't know anybody really at the wake in the room. You know, it's a very sort of foreign environment for them. And it starts with Steve, the eldest boy, and Rose hiding in the garden shed and they're soon joined by little Albie, who's yeah. only six, yeah. and then Frank and Joe, and they end up sitting like a gang on the top of the garden shed and they're watching all the people at the wake and it was almost like they were like Elena looking down yep. on people at her wake yep. uh, and they're feeling very disconnected and there's this lovely moment where their father, Eddie, he's sitting having a beer with Elena's father, with his father-in-law and he looks up at them and he smiles. Yes. Uh, he probably thinks they're my kids but for a long time no one else notices them and it serves to create this otherness. They're the Tetley gang. Yeah. They need to be physically close to each other, but they have no way to express. Yeah, and they what, can't be what down mingling with no, the guests and no, holding a no, sandwich. Because it separates them as well, doesn't yeah, it? They, they, they yeah, they literally can't. So they need to come so and they're be. they're there, but yeah. they're not there. Yeah, yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you know, Elena dies before Christmas and obviously in Australia the Christmas holidays are our long summer holidays. So inevitably, Rose at 16, I presume she's going into year 11 or year 12, and her much younger brother, Albie, they both have to return to school. Yeah. And I think Molly Schmidt creates a really authentic feeling of the numbness and inertia for Rose returning to school. The community's not so huge, so everyone knows what's happened and the kids stare at her on the bus. It's the 1970s, so the zeitgeist of well-being of students <laughs> had not been no. even thought of. No. So from her perspective, and we have to remember with these chapters, it's very much yeah. Frank and Rose's perspective, but still it's believable. From her perspective, her teachers are not particularly feeling, you know, they're, they're very unfeeling in fact. They don't understand what she's going through. And, of course, what she's going through is so intense She's likely to react negatively 
or by it be irritated by most people anyway, I yeah. imagine, in that yeah. scenario. And it, it may be that some people do have her interests at heart, but it's a very believable portrait of a teenage girl, almost young woman, who's just utterly bereft at the loss of her mother. Rose has a best friend, Jenna, who kind of knows what to say or what not to say, and she's very adept at just being there for Rose. And, in fact, Jenna's home is something of a sanctuary for Rose when she can't yeah. stand being in her own home, which, yeah. again, she's nailed that, that, she that feeling of being with your friend, yes. being in your friend's house. Yeah, and particularly a friend who has a very high emotional intelligence. I just absolutely loved Jenna. Yeah. thought she was portrayed so beautifully. She had a maturity. She was wise. She did beyond her years, particularly because I think she was a little bit better off financially. She, yes. You know, they had a bit more money. She, yeah. They weren't, she wasn't living on a struggling farm. No. Like Rose was. And she just, well, she, she was, was very inclusive. She wasn't. But you're right about emotional intelligence. She could just see the play. She could just see what was happening, couldn't she? Yeah. And she didn't demand too much she of didn't. Rose. And she knew when to sort of step in and when to yeah. just she say nothing. She was so good. Mm. But as the weeks go on, Rose and Jenna's relationship becomes a bit more complicated as Rose retreats into herself a bit more and it's more tense. And the friendship is tested and I'm not going to reveal why it's tested. As the only girl in the family, and it is, of course, the 1970s, it's not surprising there is something of a gender divide in the family. I mean, I I almost felt this book didn't need to be written in the 1970s, but it, it still felt authentically in the 1970s. Yeah, it was pretty good, actually. But it's quite, still quite a universal. It is. But one of the things I think about, about that period is that, you know, Rose comes home from school and, and she's concerned about what they're going to eat, what they're going to have for dinner. And yeah. she's often... And there's pretty much nothing usually. There's nothing in the fridge and their father, Eddie's fallen into a complete hole. He's kind of frozen in time and, you know, he's no longer functioning as a father. But some of the kids instinctively step up and Rose is one of them and Joe is another. Yeah. Joe, yes. Joe is another. Yeah. Of course, their younger sibling, Albie, is only six and he's going to the school for the first time, so it is mostly Joe and Rose that look after him. And just finishing up with Rose, one day Rose is feeling particularly overwhelmed and, and she walks away from the farm. As you mentioned, the farm is going to rack and ruin. Nobody's doing any of the work on it. And as any person involved with farming would know, you have to farm every day. You know, every day yeah. you have to farm. It's not something that you can afford to leave. She initially intends to walk to Jenna's house uh, and she goes past Jenna's house and sees her dog, but she just keeps on walking. And she's later found on the side of the road, dazed and vomiting by an Aboriginal couple, Patsy and Herbert, who stop their car to help her. And Herbert recognises her as a Tetley kid, one of Eddie's kids, and they take her home. And when Rose is dropped off, it's clear that Patsy and Herbert already know Eddie and there is some history between them. Yeah. And this creates an interesting mystery to the story. Yeah, it's a it mystery it that's does. revealed to the reader as it is revealed to the Tetley kids. Yes. But it's also revealed as some of the Tetley kids remember a few things from their past yes. and the pieces are sort of put together. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about Patsy later and I'll, I'll okay. talk a little bit yeah. about that. But yeah. I think it's quite nice to... Yes. It's a nice little... It was a clever, it was a clever thing because you, you, you realise that one of the kids seems to know who they are 
and one of the kids gives them a kiss and then no one else seems to know who no. these people are but the dad obviously knows who they are but there's a frosty you know you just yeah. what's going on yeah. here and so yeah. you keep reading to find yes. out yeah no it's good I, I, yeah. I really enjoyed that, was that very well written it was very well written I wasn't sure why it was set in 1979 either because I think if you as a writer if you choose to do that often it's because you want to avoid mobile phones yes but this didn't seem to be a situation where mobile phones would have changed the narrative, so I'm not sure. I wondered whether or not it's part of Molly Schmidt's legacy with her own father. And we'll talk perhaps a bit about the, some of the other 1970s things, the playlist. Yes. And I wondered whether, I think in the back she mentions that rock and roll was part of his life. Yeah, maybe And there's that's a lot ish. of musical references that from that ish. era must be ish. in this story. Yeah, that, that makes so, sense, and, and look, you know, we, we may get an opportunity to chat to her in the new year on the okay. podcast, so it would be really good to yeah, chat, yeah, to, yeah. chat yeah. to her about yeah, that. Yeah, that would be yeah. really good. Who's your character? Uh, so I thought I would focus on Frank. I thought Molly just wrote Frank in the most exquisitely mm. beautiful way. I, I think Frank is the standout she, in the book. So this is a sort of a 17-year-old farming boy. He's not at school anymore. And he had been very, very close to Rose at exactly a year apart in age and he had been very supportive of her during his mother's illness but then has just shut down basically. Mm. And as you say, they were all very capable of being physically in each other's presence but I think Frank makes it very clear that he has so much pain of his own that he cannot take on anyone else's yeah, pain. absolutely. And I think that's the main reason that they can't talk to each other because they literally can't carry the weight of anyone else's no, sorrow. No, um, They can barely carry the weight yeah. of their own And sorrow. I think that's most stark with Frank. Mostly, yeah. yeah. So the opening of his first chapter, he, she writes, and it's Frank speaking, I can't be anywhere can't sleep in the bedroom, can't breathe in the kitchen, feels like there's no air inside the house. After one whole day of staring at the beams of the top bunk where, while the house slips around me, I get up and start running. First I do laps of the house, then the block, then the paddocks. I trace the gravel track at the base of the property along the fire break until I'm not even sure where I am anymore. My legs ache and my chest is on fire, but I run and run and run till I can't feel anything. My feet bleed in my socks and my head spins. So just amazing writing that captures so beautifully where he's at. The rawness, isn't it? It's just so it's raw. So raw. So his way of processing the grief is mm. to just bottle it up and to deal with it in a way that you might anticipate a 17-year-old yeah. farming boy to behave. Well, any 17-year-old boy possibly, Yeah, think? Yeah, probably, mm. probably. And he eventually stops living in the house. He, said, he makes the comment that he can't believe that there are six people living in that house because when he goes in, it's silent. <laughs> yeah. They're all just silently in various parts of this house. But he actually takes himself off to go and pretty much live in the shed, moves all his stuff up there and he spends his time either running or up in his shed smoking joints and mm. avoiding his brothers and sister. With him, he's sort of the main action really sort of focuses on on Frank because mm. 
things start to change from the very demotivated stage of grief that, as you mentioned, that inertia, which, which is, you know, a very common thing with grief, and they sort of deteriorate to the self-destructive stage yes. and the deeply dangerous yes. stage, anger and frustration mm. and sort of not caring, not caring what happens to him, not caring what happens to the family. And Frank eventually breaks into a boat that's moored at the local jetty, which the kids have done many, many times, but this time he's on his own, he passes out and a fire starts and he's really very lucky to be saved by Mm. Uncle Herbert and Auntie Patsy Um, and he ends up with second-degree burns. But then he just spirals down even further and he starts to make an attempt on his own life. He tries to hang himself and he's fortunately interrupted by Rose. And and I think that's the sort of the pivot in the story where Mm. after, I don't know even know how long it would be, weeks, maybe even months of complete inaction and inertia on the farm, everybody realises things have literally hit rock bottom. We need to get our shit together. We need to to pull our our bootstraps up. Mm. So, yeah, I, I thought Frank was a, a really great character yes. and really beautifully portrayed. Yeah. I, I thought it was wonderful. I do too. I, I think, and having boys myself yeah, and, you know, which we, who haven't had those challenges, uh, of course, but uh, I just thought she really nailed. Yeah. She really yeah. nailed, you know, how young men sometimes fail to, yeah, to be able just to. bottle everything yeah, up. Yeah, it was superb, absolutely superb, and particularly in the era Yes. When people are supposed to just, you know, pull themselves together and, and, yeah. and get on with it. No um, one talked about mental health no, in the 70s. No. I thought it was just superb. Yeah. And I thought it was also perfect. Well, it, had to, it could only be Rose that found him. Yeah, yeah. Really, because of yeah. the way she structured this novel. Yes. To be Frank and Rose. Yeah. Yeah. So the next character that I wanted to talk about brief, very briefly is Patsy. Auntie Patsy is a proud Manang Garang Noongar elder and she's married to Herbert. It's worth saying that before European settlement, the Albany region was the, or the Budja, which is the Noongar word for country, is principally of the Manang people of the larger Noongar nation. And, it, and it's also been known as Kinjaling or place of rain. And there has been evidence of Aboriginal people in the area uh, for more than 25,000 years. Oh, wow. So I think uh, Molly Schmidt makes a very intentional decision about her drawing of Aboriginal characters in the book. She was writing an honours thesis at the time about how non-Aboriginal writers could include Noongar characters in their work in a way that avoids misinterpretation, cultural appropriation, stereotyping and tokenism. And she wanted to include Noongar characters in this story because, of course, it's set on country. So she reached out to Aboriginal elders in the Great Southern Region. Uh, And I attended a launch of the book book earlier in the year where Molly and a Noongar elder, Uncle Lester, were interviewed together. And the book has resulted in this incredible respect and collaboration and friendship between Molly and these elders because she consulted and collaborated with them every step of the way. So the character of Patsy is is great. She's a feisty woman of few words, but those words are always quite wise and resolute. You know, 
Racism is definitely um, a theme in this book. You know that Patsy and Herbert face racism on a daily basis, name-calling, people looking through them, ignoring them. But Patsy's pretty tough. We learn that she and Herbert have suffered a terrible loss many years ago, which has sort of inextricably linked them to the Tetley family, first to Eddie and then to his wife, Elena, and then, then to their very young children. But this relationship has come to an abrupt end several years before young Albie is born. And I I say that's sort of part of the mystery that's revealed and I'm not going to go into the details of that. On separate occasions, Rose and Frank find themselves at Patsy and Herbert's home. Frank's a year older than Rose, obviously, so he feels he's been there before. But the house isn't familiar to Rose, but she responds to them, doesn't she? She responds to their warmth. And they're very grounded characters. Yes, they're great. So grounded. I got the sense that Patsy and Herbert have been watching over the yes, Tetley kids. Yes, it was kids, like that, wasn't yeah. it? It was just I incredible. I not agree more. Li- they I just mean, turned up at all the best they were, moments they did. when and they so, were needed. So, they, so in a literal sense, they've been watching them. I mean, obviously, they've yes. been keeping an eye on them. But also in a figurative yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. Molly makes you feel that Patsy and Herbert have been sent to heal them. You know, it's a very, it's in a spiritual way. These kids are at rock bottom, they're broken and Patsy, as you say. And they're parentless, really. Exactly. And Patsy reveals to Rose that um, her son had been a close friend of Rose's father, Eddie, and also to Rose's surprise that Patsy had been present at her birth. And Patsy tells Rose, you were like my granddaughter. Mm. Now, that feeling of groundedness is, is reflected in Patsy's connection to her land, her country. You know, she knows all the names of the native plants. Yes. They're Men- Menang Nunga names. Yes. And she paints them, you know, she, yeah. and she encourages Rose to paint. Yeah. And she tells Rose that her mother, Elena, used to sit on the floor with Patsy and draw her smarty pants flower pictures, which <laughs> yeah. I loved. Yeah. So then it's one of those full circle moments because you're reminded that Eleanor as a child has accompanied her botanist father to the region and she's been sketching the plants. So it's sort of this sort of connectedness moment. And I just want to read a little passage. And this is Rose with Patsy going for a walk, essentially. I follow as she walks straight into the bush. We reach a clearing and Patsy snaps a sprig from a branch. She closes her eyes. She takes a deep breath, softly slaps the branch across her chest, her back. She lifts her legs and circles the branch around them, then round each of her arms. It's as if she's washing herself with the branch. She's humming. She opens her eyes. She beckons me over and I stand in front of her. I want to ask what she's doing, but I feel like the silence shouldn't be broken. So I close my eyes as Auntie Patsy gently lifts my arms away from my body and starts tapping my body with the branch. The leaves are cool against my skin. They smell peppery and minty. Patsy turns me around, swishing the branch against my back, around my legs, flicking the branch as if she's ridding it of water. Finally, she encircles my head, the leaves tickling my hair. I open my eyes as she tosses the branch into the shrubs. Cleansing, she says, before going bush. I can't see a path, but it's as if Patsy knows one. She steps carefully around the scrawling, prickly plants. Here and there, she stops to cut a flower in her hand. I was born in Nwangarup in the bush where the Nank, the mothers, used to go away and have their babies under the trees, come back with them all wrapped up just like that, 
That's how I had my boys too. We've come to a clearing framed by white gums and grass trees. The grass trees are a bright, almost electric green. Some of the gums have been hollowed out by wildfires. We're almost at the base of the mountains, as in the thick of the bush. And then there's a lovely passage where the digi-digi yes. birds come, which yes. I assume are like the willy wagtails. Yes, that's what I was picturing. Yeah, and, like and Patsy reminds Eleanor of her grandfather, of her mother's father, yes. and the time that she spent with her grandfather looking at plants. Yeah. And she finishes, and they're watching the bird, and the bird is flying around them, and she says, Digi, Digi, it might be your mother's spirit girl checking up on you. We watched the bird hop about for a while. I think about you, Elena Tetley, with your boots and sun hat inside this tiny bird. Is it true? The Digi, Digi skips off into the trees. Auntie Patsy fans her face, blows through her lips. The back of my neck is sticky with sweat. Patsy says, sometimes you've just got to go bush and breathe. Oh, it's lovely. And it really yeah. grounds you. I found that there's so much raw emotion in the book, you know, yeah. the devastation, the children are at sea. But when you're reading the passages with Patsy and Herbert, they do that for the reader as well. Yes. It, they allow you yes. to breathe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was yeah. very clever. It was beautifully done. It just uh, sort of interspersed this this centeredness that they have. And, of course, they're sad. Patsy and Herbert are sad as well. They've got their own sadness, yeah. But they are so deeply connected to the land and the plants and the botany and the Mm. wildlife. It's a part of them, isn't it? That other things sort of step away for a while when they're focusing on that. Yes, I thought it was beautifully done. Yeah, I I did too. I thought it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. The book spoke to me at a really visceral level. Yeah. And it actually invoked the feelings I I had when I first read Tim Winton's Cloud Street. Yeah. Yes, it's got a very similar feel to it. Yeah, it does have a similar feel. It's sort of hot, sunny Australian landscape. Yeah, large family. Big family. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, love that. Lots of different characters in the family. Mm. What about you? I I wanted to talk about a few other little characters, Mm. just a few little observations. I loved Joe. So he's the Mm. second son, so I, I assume he would be about 19 or 20 or so. And he is the rock of the family. He doesn't have a very big role at all, but he's the one who, when uh, Rose goes into the kitchen, it's Joe that's standing there making rissoles for dinner. And he's just quietly standing there. He's not grandstanding about the fact that he's the one doing the cooking. He can just see that no one else is going to Mm. do any. And he mentions that he's going to go into town and um, do some food shopping because there's not much food in the house. And he just quietly gets on with it. Yes. He's just he's just the solid rock for them. I thought he was just so lovely. He's wash, he washes the windows, doesn't he, one yeah. day as well? Yeah. He's out there vigorously washing and the windows. And he's a bit ignored by everyone. I yeah. mean, they're all ignoring each other, yeah. so it's hard to know if that's yes. a normal dynamic. But he's steady, isn't Very he? He's steady, steady and obviously dealing with his own grief. But yeah. he's not wearing that on his sleeve no. like the others are, he, is he's he? He's able to sort of see that. Someone needs to keep things going. Yeah, and and obviously there's a tenderness with him and Albie yes. as well, yes. which is lovely. Yes. So the the character that I I just could not bear at all in this was the dad, Eddie, the dad. <laughs> I was so frustrated with him, and I'm projecting my own personal experience. Yes. <laughs> very much here. Yeah. And I recognise that, but I just and I, I thought the way she portrayed him was fabulous. It's. Mm. She just describes a man who has is so broken with grief. 
He has completely shut down. He's basically just climbed up into Rose's loft, pulled the door shut and not come out. Yes. And he is not functioning at all. But to me, he really has let his children down yeah. at the worst time of their lives. And I just find that quite unforgivable. <laughs> and I totally agree with you. I think it was a brilliantly drawn character in that respect. And I agree with you. He's he's completely let them down. Yeah. But I almost feel that he feels he can because he has, you know, Steve in his 20s and Joe. I, I almost feel because his children are older and they will look after Albie. I mean, if he, if he had, you know, five children under the age of 10, w- would he have done that? I don't, I don't know. I think it would he was be almost interesting, re- wouldn't it? He's I relying on the fact that, you know, Steve's 20, Joe's 19, or, you know, the, yeah. the, that he has these older yeah. children who he thinks Maybe. can look after themselves. For me, it's Albie. There's that. Yeah, little, this, I thought he was five, but just yeah. this little tiny kid who's just yes. lost his mum. I, I, yeah. I thought the dad was extremely selfish. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I'm not sure whether she intended to portray him that way or whether she was just portraying him that way because that's the way she wanted the character to be and it sort of worked for the plot. And the other thing also is as a farmer and, in fact, the way the children all talk about their mother, that she was always there for them, that that she was the centre of their world, that he probably didn't necessarily do a lot of parenting anyway. No. So she was in the 1970s, the parent that that did everything anyway. Yeah. I'm still not going to let him off the hook. No, 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 that's fine. I I agree with you. It was extraordinary. I I was thinking, you've got a six year old or even a five year old. You've got five children that need a parent at this point. And you have to, you know, I just felt it was very selfish. Anyway, that's just, you know, I'm projecting my own Mm. stuff onto there. The other character that I really loved was the Auntie Lisa, who's (laughs) the sister of Elena, the mother, who's died. So Auntie Lisa, oh, my God, she was a good character. Mm. So she's the mum's sister and she's pretty much a pain in the neck. Yeah. (laughs) She lives in Perth. She's married and she's got little girls. She's a bit la-di-da. A bit la-di-da. She's got a bit more money than her Mm. sister. She, but she's completely wrapped up in her own feelings about losing her sister. Yeah. To the point where she's sort of wailing and moaning to the children of the woman who's just died how terrible it is yeah. to have you lost. You don't understand what I'm going I've through. I've lost my sister. She's of no real use to her no, uh, nephew's niece or her brother-in-law. And then into the bargain she starts telling various of the children that they need to lift their game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just She sort of made them do two funerals. Yeah. So they had to do the funeral in Albany for all the people who actually knew Elena and it was quite well attended. And yes. It would have and none been of the family came to that. perfectly adequate yeah. funeral from what I could see the way it was yeah. written. In a place that Elena loved yeah. and chose and to be. And her whole adult yeah. life. Yeah, and had chosen to be there. Uh, and then made them all traipse up to Perth to do, uh, you know, the proper funeral with a whole lot of people who probably didn't know her. So I thought that was quite funny. And they all sort of gave into that and just did what Lisa told yeah. them to do. So the dynamic there was yes. so well, well it was done. superb. Yeah. It was absolutely yeah. superb. And she was kind of that spokesperson for the Perth family. But you did get the sense that, that Elena's and Lisa's parents behind the scenes, there was some influence there as well going on, but that she sort of made Lisa this unattractive character yeah. Yeah. as the sort of spokesperson for for the yes. contingent. So that was that was a plot element that I have to say didn't quite work for me and you might be able to talk me out of this, mm. but 
I just thought, mm, I'm not sure that I believe it, that Auntie Patsy and Uncle Herbert were cut out of Elena's life because her Italian father, living in Netherlands, was a racist and had sort of made Elena and Eddie see that of oh, the Aboriginal family, they're no good, you, you don't want to hang around with them. I just felt like the mother, Elena, was a grown-ass woman yeah. who has got the uh, get up and go to leave Perth and go and marry the man she wants mm. to marry against her family's wishes and live in Albany and have five kids and do what she Make wants her life to do. There. Make a life there yeah. with a guy that they didn't think was good enough for them. It didn't really ring true to me that she would be so influenced by these parents in Nedlands to cut friends out of her life when they wouldn't even know if she was still friends with these people in Albany. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, uh, and I don't want to give too much away about how involved Patsy and Herbert were with, with Elena, you know, and the young children, but I kept waiting for a reveal about an, something that had happened. Yes, that and that was triggered it. it. It was just... I, I would agree with you yeah. there that for me. I, I kept waiting to hear that there was an incident. That there had been an argument or that... Yes, that something had happened. False accusation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, and obviously just general baseless racism was extremely prev- prevalent yeah. and I understand that. And we that. are talking the 1970s. Yeah, but I was so. waiting for sort of, you know, a Christmas in yeah. 1975 where yeah. something <laughs> happened. Or, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. I just wasn't quite sure. And maybe we've just got to remember and go back because, I mean, the 70s, everyone was racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that they'd walk into a bakery and nobody would serve no them. No one would serve them. And that they went to a petrol station and at that time when there were petrol attendants, they would never put fuel in the Aboriginal person's car. So, it, it, yeah, I think it was pervasive and it was there all the time. Yeah. But to me, yeah, I was waiting for an incident yeah. that made Eddie and Elena agree that yes. they wouldn't. Yes. But there's a lot of guilt there as well on Eddie's part, which mm. we won't reveal. Mm. So it should be. <laughs> it, it might be that Eddie voluntarily withdrew yes. from the relationship. It might have been easier. Because of his him. own guilt. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah you're right. That, yeah. that may have. It sort of didn't necessarily explain why the wife would go along with that, but maybe she could see that it was painful. Yes. I, that's probably a And good I wondered whether or not Elena had secretly maintained the relationship. Yeah. Given what happens at the end. Yes, yes. And what is maybe, revealed maybe. by Patsy yeah. to Rose, I wondered whether or not she had actually maintained yeah, yeah, her she, relationship. Quite possibly, yeah. yeah. That was sort of left a bit <clears throat> open, wasn't it? Mm. Did you have any more bits I, you no, wanted to I just, add in? I or? just wanted to, you know, mention the playlist because, oh, okay. you know, these kids are jumping into cars on a Friday night, yeah. smoking weed, drinking yeah. beer, all putting cassettes into yes, the cassette players yes, in the cars. Yeah. So there is an entire soundtrack to this that many people will just absolutely adore. And Molly has kindly put in the back of the book the playlist, the Salt River Road playlist, which you can actually access, which is also superb. And so, you know, you've got David Bowie, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, ACDC, Pink Floyd, Cat Stevens, Susie Quattro, Leonard Cohen. It goes on and on and on. The Doobie Brothers. Uh, That's a big one for me for 1979. Animals, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. It is just the most brilliant soundtrack. Yeah. And as we said before, you know, in the acknowledgement, Molly says to her father who passed, you're the heartbeat in the story and you bring the rock and roll. 
I hope I've done you proud. Yeah. So special. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the soundtrack is superb. Yes. Um, yeah, I loved that. And every time they, they, they bum a lift with someone, there's a song on the yeah. radio yeah. and they ask about it. So I love that yeah. thread yeah. all the way through it. Yeah. And for our age, I think oh it's, my gosh. So know, good. it's our soundtrack. So good. I mean, this book, The Five Children, One Daughter on a Farm, in the 70s, very much like my in-laws. Yeah. Very, very similar yes. dynamic to my in-laws' family. So there were lots of things that really yes. rang true to me. And I did think she captured the 70s really well. Mm. I thought she did a great job with it. I thought it was wonderful. So, yeah, that's our book club, Salt River Road by Molly Schmidt. We've got four copies of the book we're going to be sending out to people who have left messages for us. And I should just say also the cover art on the book, oh, uh, yeah. they're Kwondongs. Uh-huh. And Glenda Williams is the artist. Beautiful. Kwondong jam is something that is popularly made with Kwondongs. So wow. it's a beautiful, yeah, gorgeous. beautiful cover, isn't it? Yeah, no, I loved it. I thought it was a really great find, Lou. Well done. <laughs> what else have you been diving into, Ginny? Well, I have watched the series Strife yes. on Binge which because I listen to a lot of the Mamma Mia yes, explain Out Loud yes. podcast, yes. it's based on a book that Mia Friedman wrote about her experience of setting up a women's media website yes. basically in her living room and then growing it and building it. And she wrote a memoir called Work Strife Balance and then her teenage friend, Bruno Papandrea, who has been the director of a lot of really successful movies with Nicole Kidman. She's done the uh, some of the Leanne Mariachi books, brought them to the screen. Uh, she did um, Big Little Lies. She has translated this into Strife on Binge with Asha Ketty, and it's really good. I really I enjoy it. great. I love anything with Asha Ketty. I mean, you just can't go wrong. There's not a lot of light in it. You know, I think things need a bit of light and shade. To me, it was all a bit... It's acerbic at times, wasn't it? It was... Um, yeah. I know what you mean. And chaotic. Mean. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, Mia is quite a chaotic character person. She is a chaotic person. But she is also funny. Yes. I'm not sure the humour came yeah. through so yeah. much You're in right the about TV the show. Also, can I just ask, is the English girl that's working with her meant to be Holly? Well, I can't what? work that out because the curly-haired woman who's Australian yes. looks exactly like Holly and there's lots of jokes and Holly's been photographed with her. They look identical. Yeah. So I think the two characters are meant to be Holly yes. because the curly-haired one goes off and leaves and goes and works for the opposition, Yes. Uh, which Holly was, clearly did no, not do. No, and then there was the English girl there and yeah. I thought that was and almost man, a bit exaggerated. And, and she does say a line of, I'll leave the girl alone, which... Holly says, I do say that all the time. Yeah. So I think two of the characters are Holly. Yes. Which okay. is sort of interesting. Yes. I mean, it's deliberately not no, identical no. to Mia's life, which yeah. is, you know. Yeah. It was, it was, but it is quite fun spotting, you know, yeah. the kids and all the rest of it. And then the other thing that I have been doing is enjoying the next part of The Crown that's yes. come out. I'm just so horrified by what they've done to Carol Middleton. <laughs> I honestly think she needs to sue them for defamation. It's just... It is so appalling the way they have portrayed her. I just, I, I would just cringe. Well, 
to be honest, I think the way they portrayed Dodie Fayette oh, well, was, was just, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, They I, do like to create an enemy of the whole thing. They do. And, and, and before just... you sort of think, well, you know, they've got consultants and I, I know it's a fictional portrayal. Yeah. But it's not ever been portrayed as fiction. No. I mean, it's all very much based on historical facts. Yeah, but I just think with this series, they seem to be departing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, when you get to the Carol Middleton okay, episode, I'm not up there you'll yet. see what I'm talking I've only about. Read, I've only watched the first episode of the new yeah, part. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think I've done three. I think okay. I've got another one We're to go. We're still with William at Eaton. Right. They, they've cast a fabulous girl for Kate. She yeah. is uh, Catherine Middleton. She is, you know, leggy beautiful, crisp. She's all the things Catherine Middleton is. She's a really great find. But um, the uh, Carol Middleton is just a complete horror. <laughs> and just, yeah, it's uh, sort of a bit unnecessary, really. Yeah. You know, anyway. Um, so that's it for us today with our book club. That was fun, Lou. And I, I always do love discussing a book with you because we haven't discussed this book at all together. No, so we haven't. it's been great fun. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us chat about Salt River Road. We hope you'll read it because uh, it's a great Western Australian find. It's always great to find a book from the place that you live. And I really loved hearing your thoughts on it, Lou. Likewise. And we'll be back again soon. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in.